Have you ever heard of Kelly Corrigan? She has written four New York Times bestsellers and has a great show on PBS. Oh, and the Oprah magazine, no big deal, calls Kelly the voice of a generation. Well, she also has a podcast, Kelly Corrigan Wonders, and it is awesome. Thousands of five-star reviewers say she is thought-provoking, funny, and authentic. And it has over 14 million downloads. She gets real with everyone, from Lisa Damore to Pete Buttigieg to Julie Lithgott-Hames and Mary Louise Kelly. Subscribe to Kelly Corrigan Wonders wherever you're listening now. Hey, everyone. First off, we want to thank you for listening to No One Is Coming to Save Us. And now we want to hear from you, what you've learned, what's sticking with you, what questions you still have, and what you're motivated to do as a result of listening. Right now, you can take our short survey to help us better understand the impact of our work. And even better, once you've completed the survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Visa gift card. The survey is short and sweet, I promise, and it will really help us keep bringing you content you love. Take the survey at bit.ly slash no one survey. That's bit.ly slash no one survey. Thanks again. Lemonada. This is what I went through 40 years ago. This is what I went through when I wanted to go back to school and had a child who was not yet two years old. It's like every place you went, you smacked into a brick wall. Before Elizabeth Warren was a senator or a presidential candidate or a guest on SNL, she was a mom trying to figure out how to advance her career while taking care of her kids. I could find a place that had spaces but it was like a 40-mile drive. I could find a place that was nearby, but they had a waiting list that was seven months long. Her Aunt B stepped in to help her take care of the kids, and she was able to become a professor and then the congressional superstar we all know today. But she hasn't forgotten how differently it could have turned out for her. I knew how close I had come to not being able to finish my own education because I had a baby and couldn't get childcare. I knew how close I had come to having to quit my first big full-time teaching job because I couldn't get childcare. And I thought about how many women from my generation got knocked off the track because they couldn't find childcare. How many women from my daughter's generation got knocked off the track because they couldn't find childcare. And if we don't change this, how many women from my granddaughter's generation are gonna get knocked off the track because we don't have affordable, high quality, available childcare around this country? This is No One Is Coming To Save Us. I'm your host, Gloria Riviera. You know, when I was chatting with Senator Warren, and don't worry, we will get back to her later in the episode, but when I heard her tell me that story about how she almost had to quit school and quit working because she couldn't find childcare, I understand 1,000% why she is so passionate about the issue. 
Where would this country be right now if Elizabeth Warren had to quit becoming Elizabeth Warren to stay home with her kids? And I start to think about the potential leaders of the future who may be right now at this very moment getting knocked off their tracks because childcare is so out of reach for them. And that makes me mad. That makes me really mad. That's why in this episode, we are focusing on you, what you can do and exactly how you can do it every step of the way. So get your pencils and post-it notes ready. We want you to know that you don't have to wait for things to improve. Your story, the one you know so well, it can impact and influence a movement. I'm Teresa Ramos. I am the Vice President of Public Policy and Advocacy at Illinois Action for Children. We really were founded to advocate for childcare as an economic imperative for women. We reached out to Teresa because she has some really good insights into how to make policy changes around childcare take. She says it starts with changing the culture culture eats strategy for lunch. And so it's really thinking about how you have a cultural strategy here. Like we still culturally think about childcare as like daycare, as just babysitting and not as a highly valued, sophisticated profession with technical expertise, as well as love and care. Some of the cultural shift is reframing the industry and the work as racial and gender and economic justice. Teresa is working on shifting all of that culture in her home state. In 2018, Illinois elected Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker, and he made it a campaign pledge for Illinois to become the best state in the nation to raise children. So between Governor Pritzker's commitments and President Biden's support in the White House, Teresa says it is time to strike while the iron is hot. Now is the time to get involved in supporting childcare and early education. Now's the time where we can be able to actually think big and bold. Teresa says stories are powerful tools for change because a good story can take a problem out of the vague and abstract and make it really concrete and, yes, urgent. So when legislators in the state house are making decisions, they're not just thinking about demographic trends and whatnot. They're thinking about people. They will think, oh, yes, I need to solve for the challenge that Marie, who had a three-year-old who didn't have affordable care because she just was over the 200% of the federal poverty level. And that meant that she went from paying, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month to now looking at between twenty dollars and $30,000 a year for childcare. I have to figure out how to solve for Marie's case. And then there is the story of Sandra, a city bus driver. She has to report to work at 5 a.m. to start her bus route, but childcare centers typically don't open up until much later. And when she works on weekends, she has to like bring her children on the bus with her as she goes through her route. Parents with non-traditional working hours, that is a head scratcher. It is so much more meaningful to ask. How do you solve for, for Sandra? Because I know Sandra's story as a bus driver is actually probably the story of many bus drivers. And, and those stories stick with folks, with governors, with legislators. And as we think about recommendations legislators are making, say, does this actually change how care is offered in the mornings or in the evenings? Yeah, the power of stories is real. Do you really think I'd be sitting here in like a jerry-rigged, makeshift, 
like home bedroom studio. Literally, I had to like unpack boxes, find outlets. My microphone stand keeps falling, recording and re-recording my lines like six dozen times. Yeah, that's how the sausage is made. If I didn't believe that stories matter. I mean, stories just stick with folks, right? And carry the day. Stories change the culture that eats political strategy for lunch. And that doesn't just go for policymakers, but for potential advocates and activists like you, my friend. So that is why for the rest of this episode, we are taking a deep dive into one story, one narrative. It's about a ragtag group of activists joining forces, navigating the remote halls of local power, and trying to pass a high-quality universal preschool program accessible to every three- and four-year-old in their local community for free. Can they do it? We will find out after this break. Have you ever wondered if knowing more is always good? Or if we can really trust our gut? Or how change actually happens? For answers, I turn to Kelly Corrigan Wonders, a weekly podcast I just love. If you haven't heard of her, Kelly has written four New York Times bestsellers and has a great show on PBS. Oh, and the Oprah Magazine calls Kelly the voice of a generation. The Huffington Post calls her the poet laureate of the ordinary. Her podcast, Kelly Corgan Wonders, has thousands of five-star reviews that emphasize thought-provoking, funny, authentic. It also has over 14 million downloads. She gets real with everyone, from Lisa Damore and Pete Buttigieg to Julie Lithcott-Hames and Mary Louise Kelly. Together they help us focus on the long game of parenting, create support systems, and keep our lives in good working order. Subscribe to Kelly Corgan Wonders wherever you're listening now. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. After season one aired, I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. And of course, my 90-year-old mom, Judy. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out March 27th from Lemonada Media. Today we're headed to Multnomah County, Oregon, a place known best for its county seat, Portland. Portland? Oregon? Yeah. Dream of the now, if you only know the city from watching Portlandia, you might have an image of everybody just chilling out all day, jamming in bands and riding bikes. But in reality, Portland is an expensive city where income disparity is severe. The top 1% of Oregon residents on average make more than $1 million a year, while the median income for all Oregonians has hovered under $40,000 a year. If we just like raise taxes on the people who are wealthy, who we have a lot of in this community, we could pay for things that would be good for all of us. That's Emily Von W. Gilbert. I'm an organizer with DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. So our chapter here in Portland kind of formed around the Trump election. 
After Bernie Sanders lost to Hillary Clinton in 2016, a lot of the people he inspired were still looking for ways to effect tangible change. The Portland chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, DSA for short, was ready for a new fight, something that would have impact locally. So they went to the people. If you ask them the question, like, what's the biggest need in the community is housing. Um, We've had a declared housing emergency for years here. So that's like a known huge problem. But what people would often say is the second thing was childcare. People are paying as much for childcare as they are for their rent or their mortgage. So when people say that housing is a big issue and then they say childcare, like they're the same cost for people. And listener, this brings us to step one in how to start changing our childcare system in your local community. Gather allies. Look around you and see who has a big reason to get on board with the change you're trying to make. I employ three moms. I was a single mom coming up in the restaurant industry, and then I employ um, several mothers with young kids, like in this, (laughs) at that exact age. Jen Perot was one of several DSA members who found a childcare campaign inspiring. She owns a vegan dessert company in Northeast Portland. It's called Rodacious Desserts. Okay, maybe parts of Portlandia are kind of accurate. Anyway, when Jen's own son was young, she took night gigs so she could provide for him. If universal preschool had been a thing, especially, yeah, free, universal preschool had everything, I would have taken like a really lovely job during the day and we would have had like a normal schedule. But because I couldn't afford to live in Portland and pay for childcare, I had to work the nighttime fancy serving gigs that would go from four till two in the morning. Um, So it was just gone every night exhausted during the day. So it was rough. Obviously, it was not just Jen. Everywhere you turn, the failures of our childcare system hurt someone. Lydia Kiesling had to embrace a state of denial about her preschool bill. When I had my first daughter and then knew that we wanted to have a second child, I like did the math, but I I didn't really like do the math. <laughs> um, you know, you, you see the number and you're like, well, that, that can't actually like be real. Preschool teachers like Olivia Pace were not making enough at all. The pay was just absolutely abhorrent. Support staff are capped at like under 15. $15 an hour does not go far with the rent and cost of living in Portland. And with this huge coalition of people who cared, the DSA felt like they could try to tackle all of these problems with one big sweeping policy. Emily, the DSA organizer, says the more they asked around, the idea of a universal free preschool program where the workers were well-paid and the quality was high, it started to feel like the fight. It solved so many different problems at once that it became this thing that everybody got really excited to do. And that's what you have to do if you want to do grassroots organizing, your demand has to be super popular. <laughs> like it can't be like your own pet issue. Like it needs to be something that everybody's going to be able to see and like feel the truth of pretty immediately. Feel the truth of. Kind of powerful, huh? For those of you at home taking notes, step two in our getting it done lesson is put your allies to work. That's what Emily did for the DSA campaign. To refine their policy, she enlisted the help of Mary King. So Mary is is a retired professor of economics, and she basically wrote a revenue mechanism because she knows how to do that. Emily shared their plans with Mary. And I looked at it and I thought, 
this is really well thought through. They really got their data right, all that kind of thing. It's not the kind of tax that you would see proposed by an economist, only because it would be very difficult to pass. But I thought, wow, you know, this is great. And so at that point, I just thought, oh, I am all in on this. It's doable, it's bold, it would make a huge difference. And I jumped right in. So there was support in the community, and there were activists involved and willing to write ambitious policy to give the people what they wanted. However, there were also conflicting agendas in Multnomah County. We learned that there was already an effort inside the actual county. So we were like, well, that's great. There's already interest, like institutional interest in this. This county initiative taking shape around preschool reform was led by a group of venture philanthropists. I mean, the more, the more maybe pejorative term for it is tech bro philanthropy. That's Mary, the retired economy professor who is working with DSA. And they are that. They are, especially, I think, men who are relatively young for having a fair bit of money who are interested in bringing their skills as well as their money to help. It was a very different kind of campaign, much more dependent on money and elected officials and bringing in managerial stakeholders. Whereas DSA was a people-powered campaign, totally volunteer. The Venture Philanthropist organization was called Social Venture Partners. They've been trying to help support better childcare programs around Multnomah County since 2012. So Mark Holloway from that group, he's been working on this for eight years. I've often said, I think I, I've got to be the the... I've got more knowledge of childcare, you know, for a gay man with no kids than anybody else, like at least in the state, if not the country. But so I got involved because when I was the CEO of Social Venture Partners, a group that really focuses on kind of early stage growth uh, of nonprofits, you know, it, it was really clear to us that like we needed to have more investment in young children. You know, the science was really clear that investing in young kids is our best return on investment. And, and our community was just really, I would say, sort of disorganized and sort of didn't have focused strategy in that arena. So Social Venture Partners as a group stepped in and said, okay, what can we do to just, you know, kind of hold space, catalyze, bring people together, convene folks to, to come up with some solutions. That meant years of meeting with parents, community organizations, preschool leaders, local businesses, and crucially, county politicians. County Commissioner Jessica Vega-Peterson had agreed to chair a Preschool for All task force, and Mark was vice chair. The county campaign had a similar name, Preschool for All, but the strategy was way different. Preschool for All was looking at a modest, limited rollout to high-need families, and they hadn't settled yet on how they would pay for it or how much teachers would get paid. The DSA Universal Preschool Plan was far bolder. They wanted a free program for every three- and four-year-old in Multnomah County. They wanted significantly better pay and benefits for teachers, and they were going to pay for it all by taxing the wealthy. Mark says the Preschool for All plan was less ambitious, largely because they were cautious about freaking out taxpayers. I mean, we're already a very heavily taxed region, and I think their tax mechanism was exorbitant in, in my mind. So instead of going with a universal plan for everyone, the Preschool for All campaign would start with people in most dire need of assistance. Our, our vision was always to get to universal. The initial policy we were creating was 
steps. So it was going to be like, let's ask voters to approve um, a tax that will enable us to get to those who have the least access first. And then we'll go back to voters in 2026 and ask for the bump up that we may need at that point. According to Mark, this gradual rollout wasn't just to keep taxes low. It was also a question of racial equity, because as you build out this program, if you just make the new subsidized spots available to everybody, first come, first serve, that might work out best for whiter, wealthier families. We've got to start with the people who are furthest from access first, because we've got middle class and affluent parents who maybe aren't working two jobs or who are around. And so if there's an opening for an application, then they're going to be on it right away. Like they're going to they're going to be online if they can. Whereas you've got working class parents, they're really they're doing the hourly jobs. And it was always uh, racial equity based. The thinking was, yeah, this other stuff, universal higher teacher pay sounds nice and all, but we can only do so much with this first law. So shouldn't we focus on the families that need it the most? But what about the teachers? Here's Olivia, the preschool teacher we introduced you to earlier. I definitely felt like I was not taken seriously. She was mad at what she was hearing from Preschool for All. They were acknowledging like what families were going through, acknowledging what children are going through, but kind of just treating the workers like, well, they're they're just there. They're just a part of the mechanism, um, which is very like dehumanizing. And um, they didn't want to raise teachers' wages across the board. And it's just, it's like 40% of the workforce is women of color. So if you are claiming to do this thing that is helping BIPOC families, but then the women of color who are working in this field, who also have families a lot of the time, aren't having their wages raised, it feels like a farce to me, especially because like, When I am, like, hungry and sick and broke um, and anxious, I am a horrible teacher. And that has, like, effects. Like, I get, like, at my worst and in the worst working conditions, like, I get mad at my kids. I don't come up with good curriculum. I'm, like, stressed out. That has an actual effect on, like, how those children develop, how much they learn at school, how happy they are at school, how their behavior is at home. So, listener, now we are at step three. Engage with what's happening in your local government. At this point, the DSA knew it would have to collaborate and convince the preschool for all people that their plan was the plan. Remember, Mark was already a vice chair on the task force with the county commissioner. She had the power to add a preschool proposal to the ballot for the upcoming election. The question was, Would that proposal actually include everything the DSA was fighting for? The two groups, Universal Preschool and Preschool for All, spent a year negotiating and collaborating. Here's Mary. The things that we wanted were, I think, also things that many of them wanted too, but didn't think were possible. We were talking, and we made some progress. They agreed to raise wages. They agreed to say, okay, there can be some year-round slots. There can be some weekend days. They made some changes, but they weren't willing to go to Universal. And so talks sort of ground to a halt. And at that point, we just said, well, you know, if we want what we want, we need to keep going. And now we're at step four. Pick your battles. 
But if you're going to fight, be prepared to hit the pavement. The DSA realized that it didn't matter how many meetings the Universal Preschool campaign went to. There was nothing forcing the Preschool for All team to meet their more radical demands. The Preschool for All campaign could simply put whatever the county commissioner agreed to on the ballot for Portland voters to approve. But there was another way to get a measure on the ballot, a process called a citizen's initiative. So we put our measure out there. We went out and gathered signatures. In order to get their initiative on the ballot, they would need to gather more than 22,000 signatures in about five weeks. And this isn't just some online change.org petition where people can type in their email and tweet it out to their friends. We're talking scribbled ink on physical paper. Oh, and one more thing. This is summer 2020, so you have a global pandemic to worry about, too. Collecting signatures is difficult in a pandemic. You can't knock doors. There were no, you know, big public events happening. But one upside of having a big volunteer-powered campaign is that all those people have their own unique ways of helping out, you know, while wearing masks and being as clean and socially distant as they could. Volunteers had to say, hey, I want to get a bunch of signatures, like not just sign myself, but let me set something up in the park or in front of my house and like on my driveway and just like accost people as they walk by. And my kids, my my youngest, when people passed our porch, she would be like, do you want to sign for universal preschool? I was like, I swear I didn't like teach her that. She just was like overhearing. They would pick up their food and I would be like, hey, have you signed? One of our members owns a bagel shop and on Saturdays and Sunday mornings, there's a line around the corner, Bernstein's Bagels. There's sort of a captive audience there for campaign members to um, gather signatures and also like hand out or sell t-shirts. Teachers on summer break helped out. People who were staying inside printed out signature sheets at home and tried to gather their roommate's signatures before sending them into the county. And some volunteers took signature sheets out with them when they joined the Black Lives Matter protests against police violence. If you're a signature gatherer, having everyone who has your politics, like, stand outside for hours every night is, like, a very good situation. Between all their combined efforts, they got 1,000 signatures, then 5,000, then 10,000. But they were also running out of time. Two weeks left, one week left. There was definitely a moment in the last few days before the deadline that it felt like we might not. And so we we were pushing pretty hard at the end. But when the deadline hit, it turned out they had blown past the 22,000 required signatures. More than 32,000 people had signed their proposal. And once we had done that, it changed the conversation with the other campaign. You know, I'm a background in business. I understand building power. And I think had they decided not to go out and try to collect signatures, they would have had less power in that sort of, you know, negotiation. Your political consultants are saying, ooh, keep it small, you know, and make it temporary and do this and do that. And we're going, no, that's no good. It has to pay for everybody. It has to do it now. And look, 32,000 people signed that. We've got legion of volunteers, more than 600 people gathered signatures. I mean, I was of two minds about it. I was like, wow, awesome. People really want this, like what we've been driving for for years. And so that that was an awesome yay. And, you know, the other mind was, oh, gosh, like how we're, we're barreling ahead on having two initiatives on the ballot. And that's just not good, you know, for um, for either of us. Everyone we talked to about it said, please do not lose this because you're going head to head. That will be such a tragedy, you know. And the other group 
was willing to say, all right, universal. We have a path we can go to universal. Okay, free for everybody, you know. And okay, we'll come much further on the wages than we had previously agreed. Step five. Compromise and join forces. There is power in numbers, people. The Universal Preschool team agreed to do a rollout that prioritized families with higher need as long as there was an established plan to build that out to a universal plan that was free for everyone once there was enough spots. The taxes would be higher than what the Preschool for All team had in mind, but less than what the Universal Preschool team had initially proposed. And the two groups agreed to join forces. Let's go. It's worth it to go have one measure on the ballot, and we've got the guts of what we wanted. Now, all they needed to do was win an election. No big deal. So now this is August 2020, and we are three months away from the general election, and they have to rise above the noise of the Trump-Biden presidential election. But everybody's working together now. The DSA volunteers are doing all their volunteer get-out-the-vote stuff. The Preschool for All campaign has all that venture philanthropy money, and they can put it towards more traditional advertising. Here's Jen, the one who owns the vegan dessert company. All of my cheesecake packages had a little sticker. I think it had just the date and the name of the initiative, the number of the initiative. Um, And then it just said, we support preschool for all. And so that went on to grocery stores all over Portland. And then the bagel shop had a sticker on every to-go sandwich and all of their cream cheese tubs. The coffee shop had it on every single to-go cup. For me, it was a way to turn turn our trash into something um, important and meaningful. A local movie theater set up their marquee in support of the preschool campaign. And Lydia, the mom of two little ones, did what she could on social media. I had been like spending time on Facebook moms groups, like trying to just be like, hey, have you sent in your ballot yet? Like, just want to say like preschool for all, like do it. And then having people like, no, this isn't for me. Or like, I don't like this or I want it to be different. Then that like is defeating because you kind of expect like some people are just always going to be a no. But when you're like, you see the no's in places where you thought there would be like more yes. I was like, well, Like, (laughs) this is going to, you know, it's not going to go our way. When I saw the result, like, it was early on election night, and I just bawled, and I was, like, so happy. Universal Preschool, given a big thumbs up by voters in Multnomah County. They approved a marginal income tax on high earners to pay for 7,000 free preschool slots by 2026. My husband, he was like, wow, like, this is amazing. I felt a lot of relief. They had won in a blowout. 64% of Multnomah County voted in favor of establishing a universal, high-quality, tuition-free preschool program for three- and four-year-olds. I mean, I was like a four-year-old. I was I was crying. I was, you know, I think that a lot of us were just so overwhelmed with emotion, you know, after many of us had worked on it for, for eight years and after so much work, so much effort. And, and I think all the negotiations, you know, and uh, complications and headwinds and everything that, that we went through is obviously makes the victory that much sweeter. Mark had been working on passing preschool policy in Portland for eight years. The merge turned out to be a good idea. They made it happen. And Mary realized... People will work for this to see that oh, people power, people power could pass this thing. It's just a county. It's not the whole country. I mean, if it weren't COVID, we could have gone out and knocked on a bunch of doors as well as being all over the streets. 
So I think, you know, it was sort of a test of that. that and then, of course, it helped that we came together. Because of this measure, within the next decade, every child in Multnomah County will be able to attend a quality preschool for free, where their teachers are fairly paid. So this is a huge win, but it doesn't mean that everyone's problems were solved. Olivia, the preschool teacher, felt bittersweet about the victory. Why? Because healthcare benefits for teachers were not guaranteed in the final plan. Olivia has cystic fibrosis, so healthcare is not a fringe thing for her. It's kind of make or break. Healthcare is the thing that stands in the way of me making teaching preschool like my career. But she was still proud of what they were able to accomplish. Also recently what I've learned is like that's kind of the nature of wins is like they're not black and white wins because all of this work is part of our larger like project of just like fundamentally changing the society that we're in. And if it was a question of like these black and white wins, just making things better one step at a time, we would be in a very different world. So that's kind of just like the win opens up the door to see all the other shit that you have to take care of. Bittersweet win after bittersweet win, Olivia says it's still worth fighting for change. When you're a kid, people are like, you like are like you can do whatever you want and you're so powerful and like anything you want to do, just like put your mind to it. And I always knew that that was like a crock of shit. But then when I like started organizing, I was like, oh, that's true. It's just about like not doing it alone and like coming together like with your community. And if you can do that, then actually that's true. Like you do have the power to change things. And when I realized that, I was like, oh, like I do have the power to change things. It actually is true. And that felt like very magical to me. The only thing that guarantees that you lose is if you just stop and give up. If you want the world to be better, like there's still something that you can do and you don't actually have to lose hope yet. So there's my pitch. (laughs) This universal preschool reform in Portland was a great step forward. And no, it's not just the radicals in Portlandia making changes. There are other places around the country that have done similar things. In New Mexico, a group has pushed for a decade to amp up the state's investment in childcare. Oklahoma has offered universal access to pre-kindergarten since 1998. Why can't the rest of the country follow in their footsteps? This brings us to step six in how to make change. Do not stop fighting. Even in Portland, yes, there was progress made. However, its universal preschool plan only addresses ages three and four. What about our two-year-olds? What about babies? We need a solution for all kids at any age. We need politicians to prioritize the cost of childcare. We need them to say, This is a major problem that should be fixed now. So yes to this reform, but also, we're not done yet. And that's why, after the break, we'll hear from Senator Elizabeth Warren again on how we're going to make this happen. Hey, listeners. Are you looking to update your wardrobe with items that actually make life suck less? We're here to help. We've got brand new Lemonada merchandise from Add to Cart, In the Bubble, V Interesting, Raised by Ricky, and more at the Lemonada Media online store. 
From stylish sweatshirts to eco-friendly water bottles, we've worked hard to curate a comprehensive line of actually cool merchandise that will fit seamlessly into your everyday life. Show off your favorite Lemonada podcast or your favorite Lemon logo in style with t-shirts, tumblers, hats, mugs, and more. Head to our merch store at LemonadaMedia.com shop to pick up your Lemonada merch today. People love to pretend that there are simple formulas for living your best life now. Eat this and you won't get sick. Manifest it and everything will work out. But there are some things you can choose and some things you can't. And it's okay that life isn't always getting better. I'm Kate Bowler, and on Everything Happens, I speak with kind, smart, funny people about life as it really is. Beautiful, terrible, and everything in between. Let's be human together. Everything Happens is available wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. So Multnomah County is one county, but what about the other 3,000 plus counties across the U.S.? We say as a country, we believe in equality. And more than anything else, we believe in equality of opportunity. And that's true regardless of your gender. It's true regardless of your race. It's true regardless of your background, how you were born. Senator Elizabeth Warren is working in D.C. to push the country to put its money where its mouth is when it comes to early childhood education. We want to think big around childcare, not let's put in a little bit of money and we can help some families, a few families in a few places. No, it is finally time to make the commitment that childcare will be available all across this nation. No more childcare deserts. What are the bare minimums that you think we need to provide in order to have the functioning, healthy childcare system and early education system you talk about? Just the bare minimums. So the bare minimum for me is a federal commitment. That is, that this becomes an as of right for every baby in this country. That if you've got a little one, you can find a childcare center near you that's up to good standards, paying livable wages, and that you can get your baby in. That's the minimum. And that's how we have to think about this. So what if we don't think about it that way? I asked Senator Warren about the stakes. She said what's at stake is nothing less than our American values of equality and opportunity. Childcare puts the lie to every bit of that. Because childcare, or the lack of it, is felt wildly disproportionately by women. Building a whole childcare infrastructure on top of poorly paid women, principally women of color, is both a gender issue and a race issue. And of course, notorious wonk that she is, Senator Warren also makes a hard-nosed economic case for federally funded childcare. She told me that as a country that refuses to address our crisis in childcare, we really end up cutting off that hard nose to spite our face. She points out that women entering the workforce en masse starting in the 1970s really juiced the country's productivity. We love productivity in America because it means as a country, we're getting richer. 
And there's at least the opportunity when that happens for all families, all boats to be lifted. But women with children started going into the workforce and America's productivity keeps going up. But by the turn of the 21st century, that productivity curve, it started to flatten. And you know what else happened around the same time? The proportion of mothers in the American workforce hits a turning point and starts to tick down. Women across this country have said, it's just too damn hard. I just can't do this. Or when we had the second baby, I just, are you kidding? It would be more money than I could make it a job. We are stalling out our own growth as a nation because we're not making this investment in childcare. Someone said to me at the start of this, childcare is infrastructure. Infrastructure yes. is how you get to work. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, and I, I think of it that way. I think of the analogies to the interstate highway system. We, we didn't just say, you know what, as a nation, we're going to have a few stretches here and there of good highways. No, we said all across this country, we want America to be able to connect up and get where they need to go. And it's not going to be a bunch of dirt roads. It's going to be the real deal. You know, four lanes, six lanes, big shoulders, controlled access. By golly, why aren't we doing the same thing on childcare? When you put it that way, it's like, well, yeah, we invest more in roads than actual human children who will inherit the world. That's so messed up. We've got a lot of people who are good, who dedicate their lives to taking care of children, who want to do this. The problem is that the economics don't work currently. Parents simply cannot afford to pay enough to produce the kind of high quality, stable, available childcare. This is a market failure. We want teachers who see this as a career. I, I talk to childcare workers who talk about being forced to quit. They love the work, they don't want to quit, but they'd make more money working the cash register at McDonald's. Yeah, this reminds me of Kaya, remember from episode one, who told us she very much wanted a career in early education, but she couldn't afford the tuition for her daughter at the same preschool where she teaches. It's where my heart is at, but it's not something that is going to help me to help her. So how do we make this work? Senator Warren's plan at the federal level, actually, it isn't all that different from what the DSA crew in Portland did at the county level. She recently introduced her own universal child care plan in the Senate. It calls for free, federally subsidized child care for zero to five-year-olds from the poorest families. For everyone else, the care would cost no more than 7% of their income. And preschool teachers. Preschool teachers would enjoy benefits and pay on par with public school teachers. The plan envisions working with existing local providers, just like our friends at Neighborhood Villages are doing in Boston. And if it all sounds familiar, well, it is. It's based on the Comprehensive Child Development Act we heard about in Episode 2, the same one Nixon vetoed in 1971. The plan borrows standards from the incredible military child care program we heard about in episode three. I could definitely come back from, from work and feel comfortable that my child has been taken care of. No need to reinvent the wheel. But what is so interesting, to me at least, 
is when Senator Warren introduced her bill. It was just one day before President Biden revealed his own child care plan in a speech to Congress. So I asked her about it. And guess what? It was very strategic. She wanted President Biden to hear from a woman in the Senate, and she wanted him to feel that push to think big and then bigger. We have a president who addressed the nation, his first big address to the nation. And what words did he use? He said child care. He said investment in child care. And he said it in the same section when he was talking about infrastructure. He didn't treat it as a frill. He treated it as something we need as a nation. He's already said a $425 billion commitment over the next 10 years needs to be a little bigger, but yeah. headed <laughs> in the right direction. This is the moment. This is the moment to raise your voice. And that means, yes, send letters, cards, email, text, TikToks, whatever you do to to both of your senators, to your representative, but also just raise it. Raise it on social media. Forward it to your mother's group. Forward it to everyone you know, because this is a case of, we need to put wind in our own sails. We have a chance as a nation to live our values. And that means taking care of our children, putting our families first. We have this opportunity to do it, but it's going to take all of us to push until it gets done. Senator Warren, thank you so much for sitting down with us digitally. We appreciate it to no end. I am delighted to do it. We need people in the fight. Now We the can't time. not do it. That's right. I'm in D.C. too, so if I run into you, I will uh, chew your ear off about this issue. We'll have a good time. Sounds good. <laughs> take care. Bye-bye. Okay, so is that a wrap? Because I really need to go take care of my kids. Oh, wait, hold on, this just in. We have one more dispatch from our Call It Like It Is correspondent, Kristen Bell. Hi, Kristen Bell here, your Call It Like It Is correspondent, back in your ear holes one last time to call it like it is, but this time to you. Yes. You, the person listening to this podcast. Now, look, I know you're exhausted. You're listening while trying to make a dent in the endless piles of dishes and your six-year-old just barged in to show you the oopsie your toddler made on the carpet while your infant is latched onto your boob for the 10th time today. You'll get to that oopsie, mama. You will. I know you will because you do it all, 24 hours a day. But first, just hear me out. You've been conditioned to believe that this exhausting, expensive grind is just how it has to be and that your job is to just grit your teeth and white-knuckle it for five years until you get to the magical world of kindergarten. But guess what? It doesn't have to be this way. So I want you to take a big, deep breath, okay, like an actual satisfying gulp of air. I'll wait. There we go. And now listen to me. We need you out there. This childcare system is not going to fix itself. It's lovely that people are trying to build a better, more equitable childcare system in America, but the only way that that system is going to meet the specific and unique needs of your community is if you make some time to show up and demand change. 
Here's the thing. When politicians dismiss early childcare as too expensive or fiscally irresponsible, they're saying that because they're assuming there's no political will. That's your cue. Because political will is not some abstract thing floating around in the ether. It's your will. It's our will. Those politicians, they might seem out of touch, intimidating and unreachable in their power suits, but let me remind you, they work for us. And if you can't create a nationwide movement because you don't even have time to take a shower, then try getting involved in your hometown. Join forces with a local childcare advocacy nonprofit. I assure you, there is one. I mean, maybe just one, but they definitely need your help. If there's a campaign in your area for better childcare, I promise you they're looking for phone bankers and door knockers. And if you don't have time, I'm sure they will gladly take your money. You can also start a group thread with other parents at your office to demand better childcare benefits from your boss. And if you need some help inspiring people, try sharing this podcast with anyone you think might give a flying flip. You can rally like-minded, tired parents at the park to call your local representatives. And if you don't know what to say, don't sweat it. We've prepped some talking points for you to nicely but directly communicate with your elected officials. Number one, let's talk dollars and cents. There's a 13 to one return on investment on every dollar we spend on early education. That's a better return than anything else we do as a nation. Kids who get to go to early learning programs do better in school, they're more likely to graduate high school, they have better overall health, and they go on to earn more money over time. Number two, we can't have true gender equity without universal childcare. It's critical to getting the millions, and that's a real number, of women we lost from the labor force during the pandemic back to work. And it ensures that women are in all of the places decisions are made, from the C-suite to the halls of Congress. Number three, high-quality early education prevents racial achievement gaps before they even happen. And good child care reform should mean that the early education and care workforce, which is largely women of color, are given the salaries and benefits they deserve. Number four, universal child care is good business. Employers need employees. Employees need childcare. The pandemic has shown us that it's pretty much as simple as that. Plus, saving families $30,000 a year also puts more money in their pockets, money that can go to supporting local businesses and boosting local economies. And don't worry if you're not writing any of those down. I know you've got your hands full. We threw them in the show notes for you too. I know, I know, there's poop on the carpet. I'm almost done, I promise. Look, I'm not here to sell you on some rose-colored portrait of civic engagement. I call it like it is, okay? That's my job. No chorus of angels will descend to beckon your arrival when you get involved to demand change. In fact, for a while, it will probably feel like yet another futile thing on your very, very long to-do list. And even if you do win, you'll have to keep fighting to make sure whatever legislation got passed is actually being implemented. And then you'll have to figure out how to take another stab at what didn't get passed next session. But let me tell you something. You're no stranger to hard work. You know there's no easy W's in this game. But what there is, is community. Power in numbers. 
you'll find other parents and teachers and people just like you who are equally overextended but care about building a better world for all of us. You're part of the childcare movement now. Welcome. Okay, now go get to that poop. <laughs> Back to you, Gloria. Thank you, Kristen. So we all know we have a lot of work to do, right? Yes. But tonight, I'm going to go hang out with my kids. Hey. You know I've been working on this podcast, right? Yeah. Do you know what it's about? Yep. What's it about? Child care. And when someone has a baby, they don't get any help. Like if, you, if you're if you a mom and you have a husband, they don't have any help. So the rough governments can't help them. So they need child care. So what's the point of going to work if you just have to pay for us to stay at an area so you could go back to work, so you could pay for us to stay at that area, so that you could go back to work. Come here, you. Come here, you. I love you. I love you, too. No One is Coming to Save Us is a Lemonada Media original, presented by and created with Neighborhood Villages. This episode was produced by Mickey Capper, Ray Solomon, Kristen Lepore, and Alex McOwen. Mixing and scoring were done by Hannes Brown. Our executive producers are Stephanie Whittles-Wax, Jessica Cordova-Kramer, and me, Gloria Riviera. Our Call It Like It Is correspondent is Kristen Bell. Special thanks to Anna Ayala, Maya Suzuki Daniels, Jennifer Klein, Rebecca Glenn, Janet Bijan, Angie Garcia, Lee Austin, Melissa Bateach, Elliot Haspel, Eve Rodsky, and once again, all of the staff and families who welcomed us at Ellis Early Learning. This podcast was made with support from the McCormick Foundation, Trust for Learning, and Springpoint Partners. I want to say for everyone on this show, Thank you for joining us on this journey. We've been humbled by your reaction, and we want to ask a few things of you. First, we'd love for you to help more people here. No one is coming to save us. We want to make change with this podcast, and we need as many people to hear it as possible. If you haven't already, please write us a review in the Apple Podcasts app. What was it about this show? Which moment, which lesson, which image stayed with you, spoke to you? We heard from one preschool teacher who said the show opened her mind. She's chosen not to have kids yet because she knows how much it costs, and she calls the show a must-listen. We really love hearing how the show connected with you, and it only takes a minute. Then please share the show with your friends, your family, your parent group, your book club, whoever it is, and post about it on social media. Finally, let's keep this conversation going. We know we have a lot of work to do, so we made a Facebook page for all of us to connect and keep working on changes that can hopefully fix this broken childcare system. Ashley wrote, I started listening to this podcast at the perfect but worst moment when getting my son up from a nap and without letting me put him down, juggling him on a hip, trying to shove clothes into the laundry because if I didn't, everyone wouldn't have clean clothes in the morning, Two minutes in, I had to stop listening and just sob. Ashley, we're here for you. She wrote that this is not okay. How can it not get solved after the deep impact and strain felt everywhere? 
So join Ashley and me and everyone listening to this show over on the No One Is Coming To Save Us group on Facebook. We will see you there. Hola amigos, it's Chef Jose Andres. I am a cook and someone that passionately believes complex problems often have very simple solutions, like sitting down together and sharing our stories. Now, huh, guess what? I have a podcast, Longer Tables, where I do just that. Each episode features brilliant people like Stacey Abrams, Ron Howard, and Jane Goodall, talking about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Longer Tables, whatever you get podcast. Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah, as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women, like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B-word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts.